Very, very grateful to have uh, new family and friends together on this Christmas Advent Sunday. I'm Harold, one of the pastors, just lucky enough to pastor here at Christ Central. And in this season, if you have your Bibles, I'm also going to project it overhead. Let's turn back to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. Just looks and feels like I cannot get away from this Gospel. We've officially closed the sermon series, but there's a passage here that we skipped And so let's go right here. I've entitled it, Is Christmas About Who's Naughty or Nice? Is Christmas About Who's Naughty or Nice? Verses 48 to 51, John chapter 1. Okay, we'll pick up here, verse 48. Nathanael said to him, to Jesus, how do you know me? Uh, Jesus answered, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathan answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Okay, this is John's gospel, God's word for us today. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but there's no usual Christmas story at the introduction of the Gospel of John. Not like Matthew, Mark, or Luke. There's no manger, there's no animals, there's no singing angels, there's no announcements. There's no Joseph and Mary. Why is this the case? Well, I'll give a maybe crude analogy. Maybe it's a little bit like all the different takes in movies on Spider-Man, Batman, Superman. Different authors, different movie makers have different emphases. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John also have different emphases. But they do not differ one whit on the identity and the mission of the God-man, Jesus Christ. They have different aspects, but they do not differ on the identity and the main mission of the God-man, Jesus Christ. However, John here has no human earthly background or human earthly origin to Jesus. John instead wants to go all the way back to his eternal heavenly divine status before he became a human baby. That's his introduction. The word was God, the word was with God, and the word came to dwell dwell with us full of grace and truth. But still back to the original puzzle, is there then still no Christmas story whatsoever? Well, you might miss it. You do have to wait for it just a little bit. But John's own version of Christmas story is right here in verse 51. When Jesus introduces himself to Nathanael, and he says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is John's Christmas story. And what Jesus does by introducing himself to Nathaniel is this. He makes direct reference to Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder, it's a famous story. All the Jewish students and scholars would know it. Nathaniel, no doubt, knew the story. And Jesus is introducing himself saying, Jacob, what he saw in that stunning, glorious dream of a ladder dropped out of heaven, the original stairway to heaven, and angels were going up and down it. Jesus here says, I have something to do with that. And there's two lessons. There's a lot of lessons, but just two lessons I'm going to focus it down to 
that I think we can learn. And at least two lessons that Jesus was going to point out to Nathaniel. What should we learn by Jesus' calling card introduction that he has something to do with Jacob's ladder? Here's the first. Here's the first. Jesus does not choose to notice anyone or love anyone or bless anyone on the basis of being naughty or nice. Jesus did not choose to notice Nathaniel and love him and bless him based on a previous condition of whether he was naughty or nice. You see, before Jacob saw a ladder dropped out of heaven from his mother's womb, the scriptures tell us, he was a rotten child. He was a fighter. He was like the OG UFC warrior. And he was already fighting with his older brother Esau. So by nature, he was a grappler. And then by nurture, he had a rotten, dysfunctional dad who favored the older brother Esau over Jacob. And so Jacob grew unloved, unnoticed, unwanted. So if you combine his nature along with his nurture, back in the 1980s, we used to hand out this silly award of who is most likely to succeed in elementary school, who is most likely to succeed. Jacob would have never won that award. He would have won the award most likely to deceive. Most likely to deceive. Because by nature and by nurture, Jacob had all kinds of issues. And so as he became an older man, a young man, one day he deceives his own older brother. I'm sure he felt inferior. He felt jealous of him. And his older brother was starving. A lot of us do foolish things when you're hangry, just really, really starving. And so Jacob came up to Esau and he stole his birthright. He actually manipulated him into selling his birthright, which is the key to your inheritance or blessing from your dad. It's a big deal. And so Jacob manipulated and deceived, took advantage of Esau. And then later on, he comes before his own dad, the dad who never really loved him, the dad who never really adored him. Maybe it's just karma. He comes back at him. And his dad is growing blind And Jacob comes up to him and he deceives him as well. Pretends that he's Esau and receives all the blessings. So Jacob was the type of guy who had no friends. And by Genesis chapter 28, he has no family. He's a single, lonely wanderer, kicked out of the promised land. He's despised. Friendless, no family, except by his own mom. Thank God for moms. Moms moms will still stick by you all the way till the end. And it says that night surrounds him and he's all by himself. And then he gets a stunning dream of a ladder dropped out of heaven with angels ascending and descending upon it. And in verse 13 of Genesis chapter 28, at Jacob's ladder, it reads in English, The Lord, the Lord himself stood above it. Now in English, this is the one out of a hundred times, I'll tell you the English translation is not too good. But it sounds like when it says the Lord stood above it, what does it sound like? Where is the position that God assumes? It sounds like God is at the top of the ladder and Jacob is at the bottom. But if you go back to the original language, you're gonna have to trust me on this. In Hebrew, it's better translated. It's not that the Lord stood above it stood above the ladder, it actually should be translated, the Lord stood over him. 
meaning he stood right above Jacob. Now get this, my friends, this is very striking because this is crucial. If Jacob's ladder is about climbing up into heaven, if Jacob's ladder is really teaching us how high we should get to reach into heaven, then God should be waiting at the top. But if the real translation is God was not at the top, but he came all the way down the ladder and he stood over Jacob, really directly beside him at the foot of the ladder, then I think the meaning of Jacob's ladder is completely flipped on its head. Maybe it's not about climbing up into heaven to be with God. Maybe Jacob's ladder is all about someone who comes down for you. Jacob's ladder, as Jesus introduces himself to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, I knew you. Do you really want to get to know me? Here's what I'm about. I want you to now really understand what the story of Jacob's ladder was about. It's about not the movement of human beings trying to reach up to God, but it's really about God himself coming down to you. And that is what we call in Christianity a movement of grace. That is sheer grace. And it is unique and it's an outstanding in all religions. You know, today I had to get dressed up just a little. And my Lyft driver picked me up around 8.20. You going to work, sir? Called me sir. And I said, I am. It's my one day at work. I'm a pastor. I'm going to church. I'm going to preach. And we got into a religious conversation. I found out that he is getting a PhD in cultural anthropology. Trying to save some money in the meanwhile. His name is Viet. He's Vietnamese. Very well-read, intelligent man. And he had all kinds of Buddhist symbols and signs on his car. And he introduced himself as he's part Buddhist, but he went to a Jesuit school at uh, LMU. And now he syncretized and mixed that with his Catholic faith. And as we were sharing that, of course, he's trapped with me for 20 minutes in the car. That did not sit well with me. And I shared my story of how I studied comparative religions and how I said Catholicism or Christianity historically cannot be syncretized. Because I told him, I said, if you study Buddha, if you read Buddha, go check out this book, The World's Religions by Houston Smith. Buddha never accepted the worship of any human being that he was divine, but Jesus did. Jesus did. And I grew up Buddhist. I'm Asian. Look at me. My grandparents were Buddhist. But what makes me a Christian today is that in Christianity, there's a completely different movement. Not only did Jesus rise from death, unlike any other founder or hero, but there's a different movement. And by that point, he had to drop me off. We exchanged book titles that we're going to read. Hopefully, we'll keep in touch. But I said, Buddhism could never, never teach you that in order to reach nirvana or heaven or God or to be right with God, that God would first come down to you. He has a very well-known author, theologian, teacher at Westminster Seminary by the name of Michael Horton. And he grew up in Sunday school and he remembers a song that went like this. Jesus loves me when I'm good, when I do the things I should, but Jesus feels sorry when we're doing wrong. If we're good, he's happy the whole day long. G, double O-D, good. G, Double O, D, good. I don't know if they had hand motions to it or not. We all try to be like Jesus. 
My friends, if you stop and think about that Sunday school song, in a lot of churches, we grew up this way, we reinforce the exact same notions we have about Santa Claus. If you're good, Jesus is happy with you and will bless you and reward you. If you're bad, Jesus is sad all day long. So we'd all better be G-O-O-D good and really try hard to be like Jesus. Now, my friend, is that not true? Of course it's true. The scriptures have this teaching. Jesus is happy and pleased when we are good and we obey him. And he is sad and grieved when we are bad. But if that's all we know about Christianity, if that's the only truth that you know about Christianity, you don't know Christianity at all. Jesus explains to Nathaniel, Nathaniel, I saw you under a fig tree. Nathaniel opens up by saying, how do you know me? Jesus says, I noticed you first. I recognized you first. I kind of wanted to get to know you first. And I saw you under a fig tree. And we picked up at the conversation in verse 48. There's a previous conversation that Nathaniel has with Philip. And Jesus even knew, I also know that you mocked and made fun of my hometown, Nazareth, but that's okay. Jesus introduces himself to Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, I already knew you. I've already noticed you. I've already recognized you. And guess what, Nathaniel? I know everything about you, but I still want to get to know you, and I want you to get to know me. This is how Jesus works. It's by sheer grace. Jesus comes to people who do not deserve it. Jesus doesn't come to smart people. Jesus doesn't come to successful people. Jesus doesn't come to ethical people. Jesus doesn't come to successful people. Jesus comes in his most famous sermon that he ever preached. He leads with this one principle. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's what Jesus taught. Do you know how heaven opens up? Do you know who heaven welcomes? It's those who are poor. Now, we're not talking about just economic or material poverty. We're talking about a spiritual poverty. And what this really means is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, everyone has a chance. I came for all. And heaven especially welcomes those who know that they could never deserve heaven. Heaven especially helps those who know that they need help. Jesus came for those who really need him. So when Nathaniel hears from Jesus, you will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, the first lesson that he should learn and we should learn. Nathaniel, I'm gonna come and talk to you. I'm gonna come and get to know you and I actually want you to come to get to know me not on any basis of whether you were nice or naughty. Here's a second lesson. Here's a second lesson in this Advent season. Jesus doesn't just change naughty people to become nice people. Jesus turns both people into new people. Let me say that again. Jesus did not come to earth to just change naughty people to behave like nice people. But he takes both naughty and nice people and he makes them new. 
Now, of course, being nice is better than naughty. Socially, civilly, in school, for your job, for your wife, of course. It's a lot better. But both conditions, whether you are naughty or nice, both can keep you actually from ever needing Jesus. And one condition, however, is more dangerous. I'm going to refer to C.S. Lewis in his masterpiece work, Mere Christianity, and there's a title, a chapter entitled, I believe, Nice Men or New Men. Nice Men or New Men. And here's how his argument goes. If you are a naturally nice person, a lot of you are just naturally nice. It's good. See, it's your personality type. Or you learned and were educated and developed good social manners. You are then most likely to be quite satisfied with yourself today. See, if you're a nice person, you're most likely to be quite satisfied with your life and character as it is. You're going to be the type of person who asks the question over and over and over and over again, why do you keep dragging Jesus into this? Why, why does anyone need God? But here's Lewis's point. But if you take credit for your niceness, if you take credit, you think your niceness is actually your own. You're actually a thief. You're a rebel. You're a cosmic fraud. Presuming upon God's multiple gifts that even positioned you to be even nice. Let me give several examples about this. How many of you this morning, if you raise your hand, confident can say this. How many of you are nice when you're dead sick? Raise your hand. Oh, okay, Diane, you're incredible. Maybe a couple. If you feel horrible, you have a stomach flu, your nervous system is haywire, your bones hurt, you're racking up a wretched cough, you haven't slept the night before, irritable, impatient, my wife does not want to be around me, I'm a baby when I get dead sick. You see, health itself is a gift for even a lot of people to act nice. The fact that you're born into your family, you are somewhat well-parented, you were safe, you were safe, you grew up safe. You grew up without a lot of traumas. You grew up comfortable. You grew up clothed. You grew up fed. You grew up educated. And you see, what Lewis is making the argument is this. If any of you take credit for your niceness, and you think that's actually born from yourself, or you developed it on your own, but you do not give proper credit to all the multiple gifts that God has given to you for you to even act nice, then he goes on to say, you'll become far more complicated, terrible, and corrupted than anybody else. You see, mind you, Satan was nice. Oh, he was real nice one day. Satan was an archangel. And his intelligence and gifting and environment far exceeded ours. But to take credit for that, to not give proper worship and credit to the one who gave it to you turns your niceness into something so corrupt. Now, if you have come to terms that you are a naughty person, <laughs> that you're an obviously naughty person, you got some lifelong hangups, you got some dysfunctional patterns, you're embittered, you've been abused, you're violent. You have outfits almost uncontrollable rage. You feel lonely, 
Oh, once you try to make any effort to be good or follow Jesus, immediately you'll find you need all the help that you can get. And here's what Lewis goes on to say to those who are obviously naughty. For you, it is Christ or nothing. If you are naughty and poor, poisoned by a wretched upbringing or past, in some house full of vulgar jealousies and senseless quarrels, saddled by no choice of your own with some loathsome sexual perversion, nagged day in and day out by an inferiority complex that makes you snap even at your best friends, do not despair. He knows all about it. You are one of the poor whom he will bless. Keep on, do what you can. One day, perhaps in another world, but perhaps far sooner than that, God will fling it on the scrap heap and give you a new one. God became man, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. And the analogy that he gives to become a Christian is not going up to a horse and teaching it to jump better. It's actually turning the horse into a creature with wings that could fly. Santa Claus can only change naughty people to act nice with promises of rewards. Jesus Christ actually changes both naughty and nice people into totally new people. See, back in Genesis chapter 28, after the stunning glorious vision of a ladder and God came down at the foot of it, showing the movement of grace, how Christianity really works, Jacob is so awestruck. He's changed on the spot by the unavoidable and intimate and gracious presence of God. And he calls that place Bethel. He called the place Bethel. Bethel is literally translated the gate of heaven. But Jacob, just like each of us, was preoccupied and stressed by what he was going to do next. Where to go, how to find a wife, how to raise a family, how he's going to have income, how to pay for it all. In other words, he, just like all of us, is preoccupied with how to ensure a happier and brighter future until God breaks through. And when God does intrude so often, like in Jacob's life or my life, it has to be with grace because nobody is ever quite ready for it. Every holiday season, I have to readjust, readjust my expectations thinking that, oh, this holiday season will actually go according to my schedule. It'll be relaxing and I can maybe kind of unwind. No, no. Every holiday season, there's some unwanted emergency or there's some unwanted stranger there's even an unwanted baby. You know, Mary did not want that baby at first. There's an unwanted sickness. There's an unwanted fatigue. There's an unwanted pain. There's something that's senseless and it doesn't make sense why you may suffer in this way. But I want you to pay very careful attention to these breakthroughs or intrusions, especially in this season. Because when God intruded upon Jacob, while he was just stressed out with normal life, but God broke through with his grace, a man who had been most likely to deceive, a man who was a cheater to the core, a man who was greedy and insecure, on the spot, changed, and he vows to God, 
to give him one-tenth of everything he has from that point. Now here in John chapter 1, verse 51, when Jesus introduced himself to Nathanael, here's what Jesus is announcing. Nathanael, whatever happened to Jacob, whatever happened to him, Jesus is saying, if you meet me, it'll finally and fully happen to you. Jesus says, Jacob's ladder is fully and finally realized in Christ himself and what he came to do. Where Jesus does not choose to love or bless anyone on the basis of naughty or nice. And he does not just change naughty people into nice people, but he changes naughty and nice people into brand new ones. The kingdom of heaven, the gate of heaven, only opens up for Christ Jesus, the son. But the gospel, the good news is, heaven opens up and should open up only for Christ Jesus, but then Jesus throws open his arms at the cross and he says, oh, it'll also open up for anyone who clings to me. So in Ephesians chapter two, in one of the famous parts of the gospel that describes it, let me translate it this way in Ephesians two, verses four through seven. God came all the way down in Jesus to carry you all the way up with him. That's the movement of grace. God came all the way down to be born as a vulnerable, helpless baby. He was born the son of man so he could turn the sons and daughters of men into the sons and daughters of God. He'll carry all the way up with him. You and I will never be more awestruck, my friend, bank on it. You will never be more awestruck or changed than to meet and receive Christ Jesus who came all the way down for you, for you, regardless of your previous condition. I went back to my notes and it was exactly two years ago around Christmas time. I remember my wife bought a ladder. She bought a ladder in the case of a fire, an emergency, and she kept trying to test it for a couple days and she decided, well, I'm gonna finally test it on, on my husband, Harold. So after school, she rolled down the ladder from the second floor bedroom window and my girls were watching from above and I went out to the backyard and Sonny and I were positioned down here and Sonny kept telling me, well, Harold, get on it. Get on it, try it out. We gotta see if it works. There's a nuclear earthquake or something, we, this ladder's gotta work. And I admit, this ladder just looked cheap, <laughs> narrow, weak, flimsy, dysfunctional. But Sonny kept insisting. And the man that I am, I got on that ladder. So I went up the first step. It shook like crazy. It was really tentative. Got on the second step. So he's like, yeah, keep going. Yeah, Harold, good job. Keep going. And by the time I got up to the third step with my full weight, it immediately unhinged from the top. The ladder collapsed. Epic fail. I just crashed on the pavement on the backyard. And I probably curled up into fetal position. My wife cackled, wow, we could have all died. <laughs> Why do I tell you this story? There is no point to the story, I just thought it was funny. But I did, while I was curled up in a fetal position, have a relatively minor come to Jesus moment once again. I said, this is why, this is why you can only trust in Jesus, not your wife or a ladder. 
I remember that moment two years ago. Let me just close with this application, an application. If you grew up in Eastern Europe, you would know that December 6th, December 6th is the actual day where children receive gifts in honor of a fourth century bishop by the name of Saint Nick, Saint Nicholas. Saint Nick was born into a wealthy aristocratic family and upon receipt of all of his inheritance, he considered literally the words of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, which read, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. Legend has it, <coughs> excuse me, legend has it that in response to the grace of God in Jesus, Saint Nick did just that and he gave his wealth away to poor children like Lot 318 this Sunday and next Sunday, especially young girls who he knew were the most vulnerable to destitution and exploitation. So how did we move from celebrating the true and inspiring life story of St. Nick to how we celebrate Christmas today? Well, the answer, as I came across this week for the first time, seems to rest with none other than Martin Luther on the 500 year anniversary of the Reformation. Luther found the veneration of saints to be an unholy distraction to the worship of Christ alone. That is a wonderful spiritual, scriptural thing, which we honor ourselves. So Luther sought to redirect the popular tradition of exchanging gifts on the feast of St. Nick to the feast of the Christ kind, or the Christ child, also known as Christmas. But in two very important ways today, till today, this has all backfired spectacularly, has it not? First, instead of turning our attention to the greatest gift and gift giver, Christ Jesus himself, getting gifts and giving gifts in a covetous, consumer, greedy way has almost overtaken this holiday. And a second way it has backfired, did you know did you know the true story of St. Nick? I did until Wednesday. We have lost the true story and origin of even why Christmas is celebrated. Who St. Nick, with all of his wealth, gave his goods away because of the Christ kind, the Christ child. If you want to experience and you want to celebrate Christmas right, Respond in kind. Respond in kind to the Christ child who gave himself and everything away so that the poor in spirit might inherit the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray.